0: on the Google Play or App Store, or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today.
1: Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam, can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com
0: to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now... Your host, Mark
1: Kenyon. Welcome to the Wire to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 72. Today in the show, we're joined by Randy Newberg, and we're discussing conservation, politics, and hunter ethics. Alright, welcome to the Wire to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. Now today we've got an awesome episode for you as we're talking about one of the most important topics that we ever will here on the Wire to Hunt podcast and that's conservation. And it's this philosophy of conservation that really is the only reason that we can do what we do today as hunters in a land of tremendous natural resources. So in our episode today we're going to explore the importance of conservation and many other topics related to it. And joining us is a terrific guest, the host of Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg on the Sportsman Channel, and an excellent spokesman for hunters, Randy Newberg. But before we get Randy on the line with us, Dan, this is kind of a strange episode for us because at this very moment, while people are actually listening to this episode, you and me will actually be in Idaho hunting elk. Can you believe that?
2: I'm Jack, man. I don't know. I've been really putting a lot of energy in... The fitness category to try to get better, you know I'm not going overboard as much as some of these other guys do, but uh i'm you know I'm stepping up my cardio game, making sure my legs are stronger, focusing on you know my back and basically the total fitness instead of the uh i don't know my typical lifting routine that I've done for however many years,
1: yeah, so assuming that all technically went well. You know, given the fact that right now we're in the mountains, <laughs> assume that all goes well and this episode launches when it was supposed to launch, and that people are listening to this right now on Thursday, you and me are in day number four, I believe, of our hunt. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, let's say maybe some people are listening to this in the morning, day number four of our hunt. What do you think you're doing right now while people are listening to this, and how do you think you're feeling? What's your guess?
2: Well, uh, I'm going to look at this from the glass half full perspective. I'm going to say that we're going to be – Thursday means we're going to be halfway home to – back to the the families because we've already tagged out. Wow.
1: Very optimistic.
2: Now, I'm going to give you the the closely, the more – oh, the more realistic – Uh, idea of what's going to happen and that's going to be you're on some kind of satellite phone kept calling a helicopter to come pick me up because (laughs) I'm completely exhausted and I have I'm lost or you're sending a a, a team of dogs to come and find me (laughs) yeah
1: that that could be too (laughs) oh man that'd make for a lot of type 3 adventure that's for sure
2: no but I've been so today i purchased the last couple things I needed to purchase now that we were going on this mule deer hunt, now we're going on this elk hunt instead. I purchased uh, a cow call today. Uh, I purchased some rain gear today. And um, I think that's about everything I everything I have. The only thing I have to do is make sure all the stuff I do have fits in my pack. And uh, keep working out and shooting my bow until it's time to go. And hopefully the area that uh, we're going to we we hit the rut.
1: Yeah, I um I'll tell you what, whether or not you know, whether or not we hit the rut just right or if we, you know, whether or not we find the the elk like we think we will and hope we will, I can tell you one thing. We are going to be in some absolutely beautiful country. Right. We're going to have some nights where we're sitting on a mountainside watching the sunset, hearing elk bugle in the distance, and we're just going to turn and look at each other and just start to laugh because of how awesome that moment is we're going to wake up in the middle of the night hearing echoes or bugles echoing across the canyons and you're just going to sit there just like shaking in excitement and you're going to have so many moments like that, that you just feel more alive than you ever have. And it's going to be, it's going to be incredible. And I think our topic today is very related to our opportunity to do those things. You know, the idea of conservation and, The fact that we have public lands that you and me can go to, that we can hike into the middle of of for free and find great populations of elk to hunt and to feed our families with, that's an incredible opportunity that we have. And it's something that a hundred and some years ago, people then might not have thought that would be been around anymore because elk populations and deer populations and buffalo populations and all sorts of wild animals, they were nearly gone. You know, we had nearly screwed this entire thing up at that point, and it was because of people like us and our listeners, people that hunted and fished and loved the outdoors, because people like that who cared about this stuff enough to do something about the problem and to fix it. It's because of those guys and girls that we can now do this. So, I'm excited that we can dive into this more with you and me and Randy and talk about why this is so important and you know how we as hunters can be better conservationists and how how we can talk about this with other people too. Um, I mean, you and me, we've talked about a lot, you know, the importance of being able to speak to some of these things and, and how politics and the non-hunting public and hunters and all these different groups, we have to find some ways to at least communicate and work together if we're going to, you know, see hunting and public lands and wildlife continue to flourish, don't you think?
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it has to be, you know, it's not just being educated on conservation and hunting, but it's also how to express your views to the non hunters. That is, is that is just as important because they're, they're sensitive. I'll put it.
1: Yeah. A a lot of people too, not only are they not sensitive, but they just haven't been exposed to this way of life, you know? Um, I think we've talked about it before, but you know, in my in my previous day job, I worked with a lot of people from like the coastal cities, big cities, and you know, never never got out in the woods or did anything like this. So when they you know when they met me and heard about what I did, it wasn't so much that they were negative about it or turned off by the fact that I hunted. It was more so that most of these people were just like bewildered and they didn't know anything about it. So they were actually just really curious, like you do what, why, how. Um, so I think there really is something to be said about you know having those discussions and then also pointing out the fact and explaining how conservation and hunting are one and the same and can work together. I think, you know, this is something that has really come to light this summer with the whole Cecil, the lion poaching incident and all the media uproar that that came out of that. Um, you know, there's been lots of debate about, you know, if hunting actually can help conserve species and habitat and different things like that. And so, so that's something I really want to talk to Randy about and get his take on Um, because he is someone who's had a lot of experience having those conversations, you know, both with his TV show and now he he hosts a podcast, which is really great. And he's also very active with the politics of conservation too. I've I've heard a lot about what he's been doing in Montana and being active and actually speaking to legislators and going to these different events and speaking on behalf of hunters and conservation and public lands and all these things. Um so he's a guy who's actually not just talking the talk, but he's walking it too. And because of that, I'm really excited that he can talk with us. And I think he'll be able to help you and me, Dan, you know, find ways that we can do even more. And hopefully for something, you know, something along those same lines for our listeners, too. Um, but I don't know. I'm excited to talk to Randy. He's a guy that I think we're going to like to talk to a lot. For sure. So do you think we should stop beating around the bush and just give Mr. Newberg a call? I think we should. All right. Let's get Randy on the line. Before we give Randy a call, though, we need to take a quick second for a word from our partners at Sitka Gear. And this week, I wanted to ask Sitka product category leader, Dennis Zuck, about why Sitka put so much time and energy into the production of their Sitka films, which have come to be known as some of the most powerful and inspirational short films in the hunting world. So here's Dennis on that very topic.
3: Yeah, and it, and it goes right back to the why Sitka question we, we talked about in another podcast and you know, and it's about that experience. And so when you look at our films, you know, a lot of other folks are, you know, the experience was the, you know, that, that that animal that they were able to harvest or whatever. And not that that doesn't mean something to us, but we really put a lot of weight on the entire thing that happens, you know, the trip there, the, you know, the time in the woods, the emotional connection that those times have with us. And they're not always the easiest to convey in a film, but we really believe that for most people that's why they do this this is why they go out it's the thing that makes them feel um rejuvenated and excited and and and, and inspired to continue to do the things they do so we're trying to capture what we what's our end. that is the genesis of our feelings we try to put that in our films and and that's a real sincere statement on our behalf um you know the other stuff is 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 nice to have extras but that's the focus and we think if we keep We keep doing that and people keep seeing that, then, and they understand we're not a lot different than them, then they'll appreciate us as a brand. So, what's your favorite of the films you guys have put out there so far? You know, I, you know, because of the, because I'm in the whitetail world, I guess I'm kind of biased, but I really like the Game of Inches um, movie. And I think that for me, you know, it puts me in the moment and it has all those emotional things I talked about, but it also has a really great message. And, you know, that, that tie between, you know, whether it's the gun hunter, the archery hunter and all these other things. And I don't know if anybody here is a member of QDMA or any other groups out there, but thinking about how do we, how do we have a voice? And, you know, it's just a really good giving back message. If you'd like to learn more about Sika Gear or check out some of the
1: Sika's films, visit SikaGear.com. And now let's give Randy a call. All right, with us on the line now is Randy Newberg. Welcome to the show, Randy.
4: Thanks, Mark. Appreciate you having me. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah, we are really glad that you're here with us, too. Um, I was just talking with Dan a few minutes ago about the fact that, you know, I've, uh, from what I've heard from you and seen from you, you just seem to be a, a really terrific representative and spokesman for hunters and for conservationists. And because of that, when I had this topic in my head as something that I thought would be important to talk about, I knew that you would be a guy that, that we need to share with our audience and we needed to sit down and, and, and just have a chat with for an hour and pick your brain. So we're excited to have you. Um, you're going to find that, that me and Dan can get pretty excited about this stuff, and I think you probably can too, so this should be fun. But,
4: but <laughs> yeah, I hope I don't disappoint with the lead in like that guys. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we really try to build you up here Andy <laughs>
3: um,
1: for those that maybe who, who don't know who you are or what you're doing today related to hunting and conservation though can you just give us a little background um, how you got into this and what you're doing now
4: yeah uh, most people know me from our tv shows uh, we started out with the tv show on your own adventures but Three years ago, I uh, became Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg, and you can catch that on the Sportsman's Channel uh, Wednesday nights. have got to have a little plug in there, guys. Oh, yeah. That. But, That's uh, fine. <laughs>
1: um,
4: so the, the premise of that show is, and of both those shows have been all self-guided, all public land hunting. And not to the point where it's to say anything about guided hunting or private land hunting. I've done all the above. Um, but where I live in Bozeman, Montana, the majority of, of the hunting that happens here and in other places in the West is on public land and is most often self-guided. And I'd looked around and said, well, there's not many TV shows doing that. Maybe I should try it. And, uh, seven years later, here I am. So I, I guess there's, uh, there's some legs to that. And it's certainly not because of my pretty face or my radio voice.
3: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is just
4: the fact that the the landscapes the public lands of the west are such amazing places we've got so many amazing opportunities that people can come and for no more than the gas and the price of a tag they can be out here doing what they see us do on the tv show and that's that's what drives me is growing up in northern minnesota a little town called big falls just south of international falls i was lucky that i had public land out my door and I I kind of took that for granted growing up next to all that public land. So then when I moved out west and uh, in Montana, we're about one third public land, one two thirds private land. I started seeing a lot of no trespassing signs, and I'm like, wow, I didn't really see that in northern Minnesota. And so it gave me uh, a new appreciation for what these public lands offer to to anyone who wants to take advantage of it. And, and we ended up building this TV show on that premise. Uh, we have a very large website. You can go to com, and it talks about our podcast, our, our web forum, all the other things that now have kind of built in addition to the TV shows. So that's a that's a little bit about me. Um, some of your audience, the uh, Midwesterners are probably going to say, man, okay, he probably still has that Northern Minnesota accent. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, hopefully they won't hold it again. I,
1: ho- I hope they won't either. So, on that note do you do you ever get back to Minnesota or any anywhere out in the midwest to still chase whitetails once in a while
4: uh I, I do in the midwest um we're we're trying to plan a hunt back to my home grounds of northern minnesota but it just schedules never seem to work out i've been to iowa and for the tv show i've been to kansas 3 times for the tv show uh north dakota um that's that's about as far as we've made it for the tv show but uh i I tell people there's a couple things in my Minnesota DNA that I just can't shake and get rid of, even living out west here, and that's walleyes and whitetails. And uh, my wife and I <laughs> are crazy walleye nuts, Montana. And I shouldn't say that, but Montana has better walleye fishing than I grew up around in northern Minnesota. Wow. And if if those of you in the Midwest came out to see how unhunted our western whitetails are, we'd... We'd sell a lot of deer tags to Midwesterners.
1: That's one of those things I've really wanted to do. I keep on hearing more and more about Montana and Idaho and Wyoming um, from a whitetail standpoint, and I want to do it. But then my issue is that you know the only time I could probably go out there and do a whitetail hunt would be in (laughs) September, and that's when I want to be hunting elk or something. So right,
4: yeah, it's too, too much time or too many opportunities and not enough time to do them all.
1: Yeah, that's the truth. Uh, interesting side note, Randy. We were just talking about this before you got in the air, but you might not be aware that you know when this episode airs, Dan and I mm-hmm. will actually be hunting public land in Idaho, chasing elk right at this moment. Really? So cool. uh,
4: in northern Idaho, southern Idaho,
1: southern Idaho, southeastern Idaho. Oh. Okay. Um, so, Great. so yeah, we're we're excited about that. It'll be my third trip out there for that type of thing, and and Dan's first western mountain hunt so oh man yeah
4: he's about ready to have an addiction that he's not aware
2: of (laughs) i got an addictive personality so i'm i can expect (laughs) that uh uh it's gonna be right up there with my whitetails yeah yeah it's, it's it's really hard to explain to people
4: what the feeling the sensation and not just the sound but the full sensation of a 700-pound bull elk screaming at you from 50 (laughs) yards away. The TV doesn't do it justice. Nothing does it justice other than standing right there and your whole body vibrating from his noise. It's, It's just so incredible. And once you do it, it's like, Man,
1: I need more of that. Yeah, that's, that's exactly thats exactly how I feel now after having done it the last two years. And, and every time I talk about it with Dan, I get all giddy like a, like a school kid again because it really is, like you said, it's, it's an unbelievable experience and that sensation, and really, like you said, it, you do feel it in your entire body when that bull is just screaming his head off 50 yards away or whatever. It's, there's nothing like it in the world. Yeah,
4: if if there is, would you tell me what it is? And like <laughs> <laughs> whatever can, in whatever in the hunting world can rival a bull elk screaming at you, I'd like to participate in it.
1: Yeah, there's uh, there's nothing that can quite just. Dis- there's like you said, you can't really uh, match it on TV or or verbally describe it, right? It's just a, something you have to experience. So, yeah, hopefully, Dan, you and me right now will be in, in at this moment while this podcast is airing. Hopefully, you and me are hearing. Bulls bugling and hopefully we're running around the mountains chasing one of them so Good we'll luck, see.
4: Tyler, you do it. yeah
1: thank you so you know sort of right on this topic of elk um you know like i mentioned randy really wanted to talk about all things conservation and you know why we as hunters have a responsibility to be conservationists what that means um how we can speak about this uh, what it means in the current cultural climate i think right now more than ever, or at least more than re- in recent times, hunting is in the public conversation than maybe it has in a long time, especially, unfortunately, in a negative way, given the, the debacle this past summer with the Cecil the lion poaching incident and all of the, the talk that people are having about you know conservation and hunting and if they, if they can be compatible. And of course, we hunters believe it can be. Um, but on that note, you know the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation's slogan is, hunting is conservation. Can you share with us, you know, can can we truthfully say that? And if so, why, in your opinion?
4: Yeah. Well, in, uh, in the purpose of full disclosure, I sit on the board of the Rocky Down Now Foundation. It's my board of directors. So in case somebody says, hey, he's serving them up for the home team. Yep, I am. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, I'll just use an example right here in my backyard of both of Everybody knows there was this controversial thing about wolves being reintroduced to Yellowstone Park 80 miles south of my house in 1995. And whether you were for that or against that, there's some undeniable facts. The undeniable facts are that elk cannot live in Yellowstone National Park in the winter. There's 10 feet of snow and there's no food. So those elk whether the population is high or low, those elk come out of the park either to the north or to the south or to the east, and that's where they winter. And in Montana, the northern herd has fluctuated anywhere from 4,000 animals to 20,000 animals over its period of recording those those numbers. And here in Montana, the, the critical winter ranges, if you look at a map, Every critical winter range that supports this migrating herd are lands that were purchased by hunters. Our fish and game agencies, through license dollars, both resident and non-resident, use that money to go and acquire all these wildlife management areas. And people say, well, what's that got to do with the bigger picture of conservation? Well, if it were not for those wintering grounds that hunters have bought, and we started doing this back in the 50s, so we're not the Johnny-come-lately to this whole story, like some of the more recent arrivals who who like to criticize us. But we started doing this in, in a manner that is, it is the foundation for what allows elk to survive year-round in Yellowstone, or in the Yellowstone ecosystem. If not for those wintering areas, there would be no elk in Yellowstone. They would have all died. They just they, they couldn't make the winner and so when you go to the next step of okay we're recovering grizzly bears they've, in the yellowstone area they went from 150 to now 750 wolves are now on the landscape if you want to talk about the bigger picture of all species not just the species we hunt who are the people writing the checks paying the money doing the hard work the heavy lifting for, for the base, the foundation that supports all of those species, it's hunters. And so, for the for the Elk Foundation to use the the slogan that hunting is conservation, I just gave you one example there. I could give you examples pretty much everywhere throughout the West, throughout the country, where hunters and the money that we fund through our license purchases, our excise taxes on guns and ammo through the Pittman Robertson Act. That money is what manages or, or funds for the management of wildlife and not just the wildlife or, or the animals that we hunt to eat. We're talking, let's, let's look at that Unlimited. They've conserved 12 million acres of wetlands in this country. Think about all the, I don't care if it's muskrats or songbirds or pelicans or, you know, all the water quality benefits that come from that. The conservation of wetlands, led by a hunter conservation group, Ducks Unlimited, has provided countless benefits throughout the country. Um, per, pretty much in everyone's backyard, you could probably find a wetland that Ducks Unlimited and their members have helped somehow conserve. And to me, that just is further evidence that hunting is conservation. And like like you said, there are people who want to argue about that. Um, you can argue it based on a belief system or based on your opinions, but you cannot deny the fact that who's funding it, who started the process of conservation in, in this country, it's, it's hunters. And we as hunters have nothing to, to back away from us, anything. I mean, I think if you listen to my podcast, if you read a lot of what I write and what I talk about on my TV show, I think hunters need to start telling that story. So long as hunting has a function of food and a function of conservation across the board most of society accepts it and appreciates it for those values. You start getting away from some of that stuff and maybe then they're getting on ice. But uh, yeah, I don't know if that's if that ties the circle or ties the bow the way you were thinking of with that question yeah. but, but, but hey, how it looks but, and, and I know I'm jaded because let's face it I'm a hunter so I'm going to look at the values we provide and I'm going to promote the values hunting he provides but no one can argue those when, when it's fact no one can they, well they can argue with it but they you know facts are facts
1: so you know like you like you said there are some challenges when when having these conversations and there's different ways those conversations can go and especially given the current events, there's a lot of people Mm -hmm. who are riled up about this stuff. Would you have or do you have any advice for our listeners, you know, for having this conversation, when they're confronted about this or, you know, Cecil the Lion got killed, why would you why would you hunt and do these different things? What's your advice for someone who's in a in a conversation like that or even a confrontation? How do we effectively communicate about how hunting is conservation, how these things go hand in hand.
4: Yeah. Uh, And for me, as you can imagine, when you have a TV show, uh, when you put yourself in the profile that I do, you get a lot of these conversations on your lap, uh, uh, either face-to-face or you get phone calls or requests for interviews. And and sometimes you can tell that it's, with a slanted view, that is going to be a hard discussion to have, and so I kind of break it up into two different discussions. One is there are people who absolutely, there's no amount of facts, is going to change their mind about hunting, and those are the anti-hunting groups. And it's not so much an opinion based on facts and information for them; it's a belief system. It is some sort of strange. Uh, mindset that I don't adhere to, obviously, and I I can't really even follow much of the logic. But for them, you could provide them every bit of facts out there, and you're not going to make a difference. So if I end up in that conversation, it's pretty much a hey, I appreciate that you're concerned about animals. I'm concerned about animals. That's about all we have in common. Thanks for your time. Um, I'm I'm not going to frustrate myself and engage in a conversation where you are almost trying to convert someone to a different belief system, almost a different religious view, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. And and (laughs) it's kind of like, there's no way you would have convinced my Methodist grandmother to be any other religion. You could give her no facts, not anything else. (laughs) But that's kind of what you're dealing with, with this smaller group of people. The bigger discussion is with the people who feel that hunting has a place that are open-minded, that realize that hunting is a direct connection to our food source. And we all see and we read about the recent, you know, probably in the last 10 years, this recent upsurge of Americans wanting to understand where their food comes from. They want to understand the source of it, the quality of it. And that has helped open their minds to what hunting is. And So, for me, when I'm having that discussion with them, I want to focus on where are the common beliefs, the common feelings. And usually it is that we have a strong interest in food. We usually have a common understanding that healthy landscapes are what produce abundant and sustainable food sources. We probably also have a concern for wildlife. We probably have a concern for clean water. And they may not. Be comfortable with themselves converting or converting the the wild animal to food, but as they think about it, they know they ate a hamburger yesterday or they had you know chicken and eggs or steak and eggs or whatever for breakfast this morning. Reaching, they reach that point where they cannot deny that there's blood on their hands. Also, it's just a matter of do you want to take responsibility for it or do you not? So when I get into these discussions, I don't want it to be a, the, the louder I yell, the the greater the likelihood you're going to believe me or, or adhere to my opinion. I want it to be a discussion of here's the values I associate with honey. It's part of my culture. It's part of where I come from. It's part of who I am and my identity, but It also has this food value. It has this conservation value. It has all these other things that I do. And if you don't agree with hunting, hey, I understand that, but I hope you will respect that my desire to make the landscapes more robust, to make these landscapes more productive, helps not just me, who who sustainably gets my food from these landscapes, but it hopefully helps you, or hopefully you can see that it helps you for the reasons that that you appreciate the natural world. And I've found that having that discussion on those terms is way easier than trying to just hammer them and, you know, be loud and vocal and say, well, this is how it is, and if you don't like it, you're an idiot. Um, But It's just, you know, those are the two ways that I usually end up in that conversation. And I I would say most of the time that, it
1: turns out rather favorable. Yeah. So so something in relation to what you just said there and then something that I heard you mention on your first podcast uh, of Hunt Talk with Randy Newberg, you had mentioned some people within the hunting industry who have a different mindset about how they communicate what we're doing, why we're doing it, and then how they react to people that don't necessarily agree. Um, and this is something that frustrates me, I think in the same ways that you do. Um, but I think it applies not just to celebrities, but also to just all hunters, um, and how we carry ourselves, how we communicate, whether it be, you know, in a conversation just like this or what we post on Facebook or what we tweet or the pictures we post. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the potential risks of some of this flamboyant hunting behavior or, or, uh. You know aggressively anti anyone who doesn't you know hunt- I mean I feel yeah. there's some really strong risks to being like that to the whack and stack mentality and posting you know twelve dead deer lying on a garage floor with blood everywhere and saying, "I don't care what you think um right. am i wrong there
4: no i I think you're exactly right, and that's unfortunately, that's the discussion the hunting world has shied away from for too long, I think to the point where. We're almost afraid of our own shadow. We, we always run and hide behind this mantra of, well, uh, don't, don't divide us. Don't separate us. I get all that. You know, I, I I appreciate that. But we also have to look at it from the reality. The real perspective is that, is, you know, these numbers change slightly based on which survey you read. But about 10% of the country is anti-hunting. 10% are hunters and it's the 80% in the middle that really are going to decide what role and what place hunting has in our society as we go forward. And you start doing some of these in your face, uh, stick it in their eye, blood, guts, very little, or at least the appearance of very little appreciation for the wild animals that we are eating you start going down a path there where that other 80% rejects that. Time and again, they reject that. So, to your point, Mark, are we running some risk in doing that? I think we're running a great risk. And what you're referring to uh, in my podcast was there's a well known hunting celebrity that really lit up those of us who were trying, who try in our messaging. To show some reverence for the lobbies, to to act very appreciative, to maybe what we post, what we display, pictures we we share, Uh, yeah, we do clean the blood off them. We do give a try to give a different tone to it, and that person just lit us up for being a bunch of candy. Can I say that?
1: Kenny? Say whatever yeah. you want. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Being a bunch of candy asses and you know it it annoyed me. And I'm like, you know what? There is nobody in the hunting world. I don't care who you are. There is nobody in the hunting world who's more important than the future of hunting. And I think the T V guys, if anything, we have a tendency to probably think we're more important than we probably are. I mean I'm just some backwoods punk who fell off the lumber truck in Big Falls, Minnesota. (laughs) I, I, I view it as my responsibility to do everything I can to give hunting a brighter place going forward. And the stuff I often see on Facebook or on whatever it might be, and a lot of the TV shows, some of the TV shows Are absolutely the wrong message, and and some will say, "Oh, Randy, you're just saying that because it's not your message." And maybe I am. I don't know. But when you have people boasting about, "Oh, I made this long shot and saw the animal run off, and then took three more shots to finish it off," or uh, you know, you know the kind of message I'm talking about. Yeah, that is not. What we really need to be telling the rest of society, if if that is what we want as an image of hunting, I guess is is where I'm going with this. That is not the image of hunting. It's not our place in society that got us to the point of where we are today. What got us to the point of where we are today is back in the 1800s when wildlife was being wiped off the face of North America by the market shooters, by the by the, the people who were profiting from wildlife commerce. The hunter stood up and said, it enough is enough. And it wasn't until Theodore Roosevelt and his friends, George Bird, George Bird Grinnell, Gifford Pinchot, I mean, the list goes on and on. They were all hunters and they stood up and said, you know what, in America, we can do better. We can build a collective conservation ethic within our society that will be better for wildlife and better for the landscape. And so we as hunters stepped forward then as leaders. We stepped forward in the Dirty 30s, the Dust Bowl eras, and we formed a lot of hunting organizations. We engaged in habitat. We started taxing ourselves to pay for habitat and pay for wildlife management. All the things that we've done to get us to where we are today that our parents and grandparents and great grandparents did wasn't getting on TV and burying the idiot meter. It wasn't getting on Facebook and telling the world to go take a leap. If you don't like what I do, how I do it, da da da. We got to where we are today by people thinking about this, by saying, Hey, I want this to be something society views as a benefit. To the bigger picture and I think there are times that the message that hunting puts out there uh, is, is detrimental to the cause. I got it real quick. You're going to get a bunch of emails or calls and why'd you have that more on, <laughs> on the show but uh, I, I strongly feel that
2: way. So Randy how do I want to say probably the majority of hunters. How do we talk to those more flamboyant people and tell them, you know, it may benefit us as a whole to just calm it down a little bit? How do, how yeah. do we talk um, to those people? Right. When you talk to those people, they get very
4: defensive. I've had the discussions with them. They'll tell you to go pound sand. So for me, I just, I don't follow them. I delete them. I, I make, uh, <laughs> I use my own platforms to counter their message and somewhat ridicule their behaviors. Uh, and when you talk to them, you, unfortunately, they're, some of those most uh, flamboyant of, of, of the term um, are almost as obnoxious as the fringe on the other side. Yeah, they, they view that this is America. You can't tell me what to do. This is my right, blah, 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 blah. You know what? And they're correct in that assessment. But if we as the collective hunting community are going to let a few jackasses form our identity and we're not going to stand up and say anything about it, then we're somewhat complicit in that process. And I'm not going to just sit there and be quiet. And if it upsets a few people, hey, that would imply that I care that they're upset. I'm not. To me, and to you guys, time is way more important to me than some gay who have hurt feelings that I told them that I thought their behavior wasn't beneficial to the cows on it.
2: And yeah. then as a, as you a gonna, follow... I'm sorry, go ahead. That's going to be
4: a debate or a discussion that I think happens more and more. And, and you can almost take that to the to the point you brought up earlier about you know this uh lion poaching thing and i don't necessarily want to compare everything to that or, or drag that in as an equivalent but you know we in the hunting world are going to have to discuss among ourselves when things like that happen is this really what we want hunting to be seen as it's it, Is this the image and the identity that we are telling society as a whole who we are and what value we provide? No, I don't know. That's a hard one.
2: And then as kind of a follow-up question to that, when, when, as a hunter, I I know that there are realities of hunting like bad shots that happen, right? So if someone in, let's say the hunting industry, And I'm going to try to, I'm going to play this to you, Mark, just a little bit with the jawbreaker story and just to play devil's advocate for a moment, Mm -hmm. bad shots leading to a non-recovery and, and ultimately the animal suffers and dies. Is that something, you know, as a hunter, I like to see that because it's a reality of hunting. Is that something that we should stay away from like, Putting on TV shows or not necessarily writing about, but keeping it out of the eyes of that other 10%. You
4: know, that's that's uh, <laughs> that one lands right on my lap because I was lucky I hunted for 34 years and then never lost an animal.
1: Wow.
4: And then in 2011, I shot a black bear in Alaska. I'd lay there, I'd dry-fired at him from 240 yards while he was sitting in a bed, and I just waited and waited, and finally when he got up, I made the shot. The bullet hit exactly where I thought it should. thought it was a perfect lethal shot. Um, unfortunately, I did not realize that in a black bear, their heart and lungs area is lower in their chest cavity than I had understood it to be. So I hit the animal high and I chased the animal until dark. I followed blood on my hands and knees. It was the most gut-wrenching, terrible feeling I've ever had in hunting. I hope no one else ever goes through it, but I know it happens. Uh, and so after that hunt, <coughs> myself and the production crew, we got together and said, should we really even be showing this? What's, uh, What's the story? What's the value of demonstrating or, or providing this? And I decided I wanted to show it. I wanted to film it in, in, or, or, or have it made into an episode. And the reason being is I think we as hunters need to understand that occasionally that happens. In spite of the best efforts, in spite of all of our follow-up, all of our practice, it can happen. And it's not that it did happen that is the make or break, but how that person handles it. Do they just say, oh, well, I looked for 10 minutes, I didn't see any blood, off to the next thing. Um, I I struggle with that. Uh, as quick as I hit that bear, I punched my dad um, because I knew it was a lethal hit. And even though I didn't recover that bear, um, I wasn't going to go find another one. Um, I've had another episode where I hit an elk and I thought I wasn't going to recover it. I punched my tag the next morning we went out searching again. And lo and behold, we did find the bull. He just expired and we salvaged all the meat. But those stories were very powerful and compelling stories. Had I just said, oh, well, that elk, too bad for him. I still have a tag. I'm going to go shoot another one. I think that's a completely different message, and, and I read about it a lot on some of the web forums with guys who say, yeah, I wanted one, but I went and shot another one, and I ask myself, is, is our license to take one animal from the population or take as many as it is necessary before we recover one that we've taken from the population? And that's each hunter's decision. But when we start sharing that message with a greater audience, uh, whether it's the hunters themselves or the, the 80% outside there, uh, I think we got to be careful in how we say that. And if we don't show some concern and remorse and regret, uh, if we seem calloused and, and unaffected by it, uh, the, the bigger society is going to say, you know what, if that's all the regard they have for, for these animals that they're
1: they're pursuing. Uh, maybe hunting doesn't have a place. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky angle on on this whole topic. And I think to your point, Randy, the key is is how it's handled. And then I think if it is something that's going to the public eye, it's how it's communicated. Um, you know, in my case, for example, that Dan had mentioned a few minutes ago. You know, I had a buck this year and wasn't able to recover him, um, and I spent literally two days, 12 hours of daylight, each 24 hours tracking and searching and grid searching and on my hands and knees and doing everything I possibly could. And it, you know, as you, as you mentioned in your case of the black bear, it absolutely tore me to pieces. Um, and I felt horribly, horribly, horrible about it. And, you know, I, I shared all that through our website and our podcast. And I really talked about all these things and, You know, for the most part, I'm speaking to a serious deer hunting audience who's been through those things and who can appreciate the the realities of the fact that this sometimes happens. But interestingly, I had a handful of people of non hunters who listened to one of these podcast episodes, um, who used to work with me at at a past job of mine, and you'll almost surprisingly they had reacted positively to that in hearing how much a hunter cares about the animal that he shoots and hearing about how much we put into it and how emotionally affected and how, you know, I think sharing that in some way in the right circumstances, I think can also communicate the same care and dedication that we have to the animals and to wildlife and wild places and to this hunt and doing it the right way. Um, I think it all comes down to the execution of the actual communication and how we share these things and, and opening the door to people and saying, hey, this is a look into this reality that we partake in that sometimes isn't pretty, but we care a lot about it. Um, yeah, I think you're exactly right. How that message is is
4: crafted and how it's presented is a huge part of how people receive the message. And we we got to remember... As hunters, when we're doing this, whether it's digitally or print or TV, we are taking a very personal experience. The experience of taking the life of another member of this planet and converting it to meat for our families. And I know very few hunters, even today, when I walk up to that animal and I see that it's either now this bluish green haze and not the sparkly brown it was just five minutes earlier it still hits me very profoundly and I don't care what anyone's religious or faith or, or level of, of uh, uh, following is to to their uh, belief systems but I always give for, for me I always give a prayer of thanks for that animal and I'm not saying that that's what everyone else needs to do but it just is that profound for me so if we have something that is that important an event uh, that's been going on since man became part of this earth um, and we we convey it in a way that's rather cavalier or callous um, that's, that's a hard one for for a lot, a lot of people, myself included, to swallow. I I wanna know that people appreciate what that animal represents. That animal represents food. That animal represents the landscape and its bounty. It represents the bigger picture of the, the habitats that we're trying so hard to conserve in a world where a growing human population puts more and more demands on it. And that animal also represents to me, anyhow, it represents a gift to me from the herd or, or the greater population of those animals. And I'm going to do what I can to make sure that these lands and that herd is in better shape tomorrow than it was today. And that that's what all that means to me when I walk up there. And that's thats a lot of emotion. That's a lot of power that I'm trying to distill and properly convey in a TV show or, for in your case, in a blog. And I hope that the hunting world realizes that we're being watched. In today's world, people want to see, do we have that concern? Do we have that compassion, that appreciation? And if so, how do we communicate it?
1: And I think a a takeaway message here, too, is that, you know, I agree with you 100% on everything you just said there, and that this doesn't apply, though, just to people in the media like you or me or Dan or someone who has a larger platform. The same exact things apply to any hunter out there who maybe is just talking to one single person but if that one single interaction that they have is one of you know one of their only interactions with a hunter maybe for a lot of these people that live in you know very urban areas they're not exposed to our way of life or to people that practice the way of life that we do so every interaction is a chance to be that you know there's the potential you might be their one example of what a hunter is and does and says and and believes in and that's a huge responsibility to be that but- to be that representative for all of hunting. You know, I look at every engagement I have with a non-hunter, whether I'm actually talking about hunting or if it's you know just on the fringes of our conversation or what I'm wearing or what I'm doing. I think about that all the time because it's just so important these days. It, it always has been, but it's especially important, I think. It, and if you watch our show,
4: um, one of the things that I've, I've always struggled with, how do you teach the audience or, or explain to the audience the connection this has to food. And so for us, we'll either do segments that talks about, hey, we're eating the animal. up you saw us take last week or the week before. But we always try to show in some tasteful method the conversion of that animal to food, whether it's us putting it in our packs or um, whatever. Because I, as much as that's not a pretty sight, I think a lot of people look at it and say, you know what? They're using that. It's a food source. It's a connection. It's how I came to hunting was through food. I mean, that's my family. We, we hunted for food. And and so I think the bigger message is that the, the, greater the food message, the greater the acceptance, the less the food message or an absence of a message of this animal representing uh, sustenance, the harder, the harder it is for us to make our case. So I, I, I know some people will disagree with me and say, Randy, that's just too bad for them. Uh, if they don't like the fact that I I don't eat it or I whatever. And I I get that, everyone can do whatever they want, however they want, but again, we are in a different world than it was for our parents, for our grandparents. We're in a world of hypersensitivity, we're in a world of extremely fast communication. People form their opinions very quickly. And as we urbanize and less people uh, live in a rural lifestyle that is more attached to the land and the landscape, the greater the population percentage that doesn't understand the food source, doesn't understand the natural world, doesn't understand that for something to be put on their plate, something had to die. And if we don't just, Stand up and say, you know what? This is the reality we deal in. We may not like it, but it's the reality we have today. How do we adjust, react, and message ourselves accordingly? Uh, we might have a shorter path than than we think.
1: Yeah, that's that's the scary truth. Um, I've got one more um, equally controversial topic on this before I want to, before I want to take a step back, um, a little more conservation habitat focus, but one more thing when it comes to public perception, I want to get your thoughts on this. This is something that me and Dan have, um, have shared our strong opinions about in the past on previous episodes. Um, and that is the concern with the perception that the public gets from high fence Preserves. I, I personally don't like to call them hunting preserves. This is just me personally. I've got strong opinions about it. Um, but these high-fence situations where deer are bred to be freaks of nature and then people are allowed to go in there and shoot these animals, um, there's a lot of debate about it. There's lots of high emotions about it. Um, I mm-hmm. strongly am concerned about the risks both from a, from a herd health and, and disease standpoint but then also from the fact that when the public sees that and thinks – those are hunters, that's hunting, that's something they have a very yeah. negative reaction to and then pin that negative feeling and association back to all of hunting. That's my risk. How do you feel about that?
4: No, I. You said it perfectly. Um, back to my point, that for me to consider something hunting, there has to be a food element to it and a conservation element to it. I have yet to understand what the food element or the conservation element is of raising a deer in a pan artificially inseminating the does and having someone come and buy that deer off the menu. I I don't know what maybe I'm just ignorant of it and so I don't see the conservation value or the food value. Um, If anything I can argue and provide all kinds of evidence that shows it's a negative conservation value because of the disease issues. The disease issues for me, and, and you brought this up, is a very big issue related to this. Uh, in Montana, and I believe it was 2000 or 2001, 2002, we had a ballot initiative that said, you can continue to breed these animals, but you cannot have them as shooting preserves. Words, you, you can breed them for food or for broodstock, but you cannot come here and pay people to shoot them in. The very big blow up here in Montana. And to the point where the legislature was going to intervene and they were going to reimburse all these people, blah, 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 because supposedly there was no risk, no disease risk. So some of us went forward and said, OK, if there's no d- disease risk, then why do you people, why does this industry fight every time we ask them to be bonded against that disease risk? Let's go to the open market. Let's find the place that understands insuring risk. There's bonding, insurity, and insurance companies out there that you can get insurance for most anything. They're the experts in assessing risk. If they say there is no disease risk to captive breeding facilities, then your insurance should be just a minimal token amount. But you guys tell us that if we made you insure for this risk, it would put you out of business. So obviously, there must be a huge amount of risk. You can't have it both ways. You can't say there's no disease risk and then say, oh, for us to insure for that disease risk, we'd go bankrupt. It's one or the other. Either there's no risk and the price to insure is minimal or the price to insure is exorbitant because the risk is there. And if if these groups, if these businesses were required to insure for the risk they're imposing upon us as a public, I think you would see the economics of those business models fall apart. Right now, they get to privatize the profits. They get to socialize the risks of disease. Look at Wisconsin. How many millions and millions of dollars has Wisconsin spent on CWD? How many hunting opportunities has Wisconsin lost in their efforts to eradicate CWD? It's crazy.
1: It's a scary situation.
4: Right. And so we as the general public, we as the, the hunters of, of the non non animals, those of us who want to actually hunt wildlife, we end up bearing that cost both financially, both from an image standpoint and also we end up bearing that cost from the opportunities that we lose. So and it's here's the sad part. It's a billion or some multiple billion dollar industry. Which causes me to scratch my head and say, whoa, if this is what people want to form as the image of hunting going forward, society rejects that. You, you, if you ran a poll tomorrow of whether or not the American public would accept hunting as pen shooting facilities, and some will argue, oh, well, some of these enclosures are 1,000 acres or 200 acres or whatever, fine, whatever. The public is not going to make any distinction to that. If you ask them, do you see a legitimate place for hunting in our future? If the image of hunting is raising animals for some sort of perverted method of, of grotesque antler growth, and then come and shoot them and pay for them based on some arbitrary scoring system, of which you do not utilize the meat, or maybe the meat gets utilized somehow, I don't know. Um, Asking that's the other 80% of, of America if hunting has a future under that scenario. And I, I can tell you what that answer would be. So, to your point, is this a huge risk for us? It's a huge reputation risk for hunting. And that's why I refuse to let these groups attach themselves to the noble, honorable, Conservation-based, food-based notion of hunting in America. Right? I'm just not gonna, as far as long as I have a breath in my body. I am not going to recognize that as hunting. And they will use the argument, "Oh, you're dividing the hunting community." Mm-hmm. No, we're not. You're a parasite who wants to come and attach yourself to all the values that our hunting has. You're the one who is trying to split the hunting community. You are a parasite that needs a host. If not for the host of hunting as we know it, that has traditionally occurred in the United States for the last 140 years, those operations have no public, no future, no no support that will allow them to sustain. And they want to call themselves hunting. I say BS, that's not hunting. You're not doing anything to improve food. You're not doing anything to improve the landscape. You're not doing anything to pr- to improve the wild herd health of the other animals nearby. I mean, in Idaho, they allow it. They've had many escapements of of elk that have a lot of red deer in them. Now we have the issue of, okay, our genetically pure native elk are going to be affected by the fact that there are now some red stags running around out there. How do you measure the damage or the cost of, polluting your genetic herds, your wild, free ranging, natural genetic herds. It's all those kinds of things, whether it's TB, whether it's CWD, all those things that are part of this bigger picture. And, and we as hunters are going to have to have that discussion pretty soon and just call the spade a spade and say certain activities, if they cannot add some level of value, we are not going to consider that money, and it's going to be a knockdown dragout so is that at that point why? is
2: it a is it a money thing? I mean the only reason they're around is because they make you know it's a billion dollar industry
4: yeah I, I, this is, this is, from my perspective i I don't know what other value they provide, and I get it that there are some people due to their physical uh impairments or their infirmity that they're not going to hike five miles into the mountains to do an elk hunt like I do. I understand that there are certain people where maybe this is the highest level of physical exertion they can have. Um, and so I'm not talking about you know those type of people, but those are the ones who always get marched out there as the straw man, the, the Trojan horse of, well, this is why we need shooting pens is for these people. Well, those people aren't the ones who are generating billions and billions of dollars. And this is a huge industry. That's, that's what it's become. And politically they're, they're definitely a foe. look at the the big battle that happened in Indiana over the last year about allowing these facilities. If I lived in Indiana, I'd be asking the question, who's going to pay for this? If we have disease outbreaks, who's going to pay for the opportunity cost? If we have to go on, I, I love the term they use depopulate an area because Mm -hmm. of the CWD outbreak depopulate let's call it what it is we're going to go and wipe every deer off the landscape in that area the industry likes to call it depopulate and they don't want to be managed or they don't want to have their oversight under the DNR or the game and fish departments they want their oversight under the agricultural the the departments of livestock so tell me are you hunting and if you think you're hunting, why don't you want to be managed by a fish and game agency? Sounds to me like you're farming, but you're livestock because you want to be managed by your Department of Livestock or your Department of Agriculture. There's there's just so many incongruencies, so many arguments that make that are illogical in in this process of trying to defend w- what I do not believe is an image of hunting that is going to be beneficial to us having a place in society as we go forward.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's I gotta, frustrating. I got have enough depot man.
2: <laughs> so, so what do we need to do as hunters to make a statement to our political representatives to say we're against this?
4: I think that is the important part because we can all get on Facebook and rant one way or the other. We can sit around, you know, complain with our buddies. I think really it's time for hunters to become more politically active. Uh, And you've heard me say this on many other platforms on my podcast that these industries or multiple different industries that look at the landscape, they say, "Hmm, you know, if we drag this over to the world of politics, these hunters are not organized. They're kind of loners as as a general rule. They don't have any group that's good at dealing in the world of politics. So they, the game farm industry is a perfect example. They bring that into the world of politics. They take their management or their oversight away from fishing game agencies, bring them to departments of commerce or agriculture or livestock, uh, write their own rules. Um, and so we as hunters are standing there saying, what do we do about this? And really the answer is we get politically active, uh, and we do it at the local level. We talk about the importance of what these wild herds mean to us. We talk about the importance of what our hunting heritage and our hunting image means to us. And that if these facilities are to exist, they're going to exist by paying all their own costs, absorbing all their own risks, assuming all the liabilities they place on, on society. And if then they can make it, well, then maybe we have a different discussion, but we still don't let them be called honey. And that's the Randy Newbert approach to uh, it because, and we all get, uh, we've all been in the discussion, <laughs> you guys have, I have and yeah, I always, try to tone it down a little bit because everyone pulls out the big trump card oh you're splitting hunters you're splitting hunters and i i don't know any guys that i hang out with that intentionally try to split the hunting community Uh, but in this instance you're really not splitting splitting the hunting community to me you're taking the tick, the chigger, the parasite the lamprey off the host off this wonderful thing we call hunting and you're throwing it to the side and say, you know what, Mr. Tech, Mr. Chigger, if your pen shooting operation can stand on its own without a host, well, knock yourself out. But right now I'm not going to let you know, what call this hunting. You're not part of who we are and I'm not letting something I love, something that is so important to me and my identity and my life and my family. I'm not letting that get drugged down the sewer with what you guys are doing just to spend some fast money out of
1: this. I love the analogy. I do. I, I like the tick analogy. Um, so about politics, about hunters becoming more political. I, I, I've got two sides of this. One part of it I want to talk about is the risk of conservation and hunting getting political. But before I want to get to that, I want to... I want to hear more about specifically what you're doing because you mentioned we need to talk about these things at the local level. We need to, you know, share this message. But from what I've heard, you are actually taking that one step further and you're actually speaking with legislators or hearing committees, different things like that. Can you talk to us specifically about, you know, what hunters can do, whether it be in regards to this or about just some type of habitat protection or gun rights or hunters, you know, access or whatever it might be. If there's something that's going on in, you know, politics that's related to what we believe in, what we want to try to protect. How can an individual hunter make a difference?
4: Yep. And the best thing I think hunters can do is go back to, if you remember 30, 40, 50 years ago, every little town had a rod and gun club or a local sportsmen's association. And politicians paid attention to those groups. Uh, And even if it's just you and five of your buddies or whatever it is, that feel strongly about a certain management idea or a certain political idea or proposed legislation, let your local representative know. Uh, They, they're responsive. If they get one canned email, one form letter, they're not going to pay much attention. They get five different phone calls or five handwritten emails, uh, hand type emails. They start paying attention and if it's your county commissioners, whether it's your state legislators, whatever it is, they will pay attention. And you take it to the next level. Maybe it's not just a local area in your backyard. Maybe it's a regional issue. Maybe it's a statewide issue. Or maybe it's a national issue. Um, you engage yourself with these people. And it's. I know for some that seems daunting. But we spend a lot of time typing out posts and, and our thoughts on you know, social media or on forums or elsewhere. Spend some of that time sending an email. You'll be surprised how responsive some of these politicians are. And, and that's where the other side is counting on hunters continuing to be disengaged or apathetic about it. Uh, and if you can, form a group of four or five fellow hunters. And it might grow to be a 100 fellow hunters. And you'd be amazed how much power you have. Uh, I'll use an example here in Bozeman, Montana, our little town. You know, we've got 30,000 people in this town, and there's probably two to 300 of us belong to this Rod and Gun Club. We have a huge sway in what happens in statewide politics in Montana to the point where now even our congressional and senatorial people, when they're talking about hunting and fishing and access issues uh, when they're back in D.C., we're the ones who get the phone calls. Uh, a big part of, of being engaged, what's the old saying that the 99% of the work is just showing up? Well, if you're there and you show up and you're part of the discussion, you're going to have way more influence than the other in 99% who didn't show up. I know it's not something that people want to do. We're all busy. We got kids, we got work, we got everything else. But the future of of our activity hunting is going to be heavily determined by us being willing to engage the politicians who are more and more every year, every legislative session, trying to play political football with our issues. If, if you want to score a touchdown, you got to be in the game, and if the game is being played on the political football field, you aren't going to score a touchdown sitting in the bleachers. It's that simple.
1: Yeah. Now, that is, like you said, daunting, but important. On the other side of the fence, though, I see risks in the political politicalization of hunting and conservation issues, and I want to share one example um, that I think you've you've shared some thoughts about before too but it's something that just drives me nuts and it's you know in relation to when we're talking about habitat related issues something that is a hunter issue it's an issue that pertains to what we do what we love what we care about you know protecting habitat for fish or deer or elk or you know setting aside land for whatever it might be related to conservation these issues seem to me to be issues that are very much you know in line with with what we all as hunters care about but then you hear on the other side, the politics coming into it and saying, well, that's, you know, that's a democratic issue. That's a liberal thing trying to, you know, you're siding with all the environmentalists. You sound like a wacko. Um, People start saying, well, this is something that only if you're a liberal or only if you're a Democrat, you can do. And this is something you can only do or believe in if you're a Republican. And then I'm saying, well, hey, I believe in this and I believe in this other thing. And it doesn't fit any one of these two parties. And why can't hunters be pro-protecting habitat or pro-believing in the fact that there might be some things that we're doing that are not good for these wild places that we care about and that maybe we should change that.
4: Um, Yeah. I I think the biggest risk hunters have is if we let ourselves be defined by one political party or the other. Um, People will, you could go to anything I write, anything I When I go to D.C. or to the state legislatures, I'm an equal opportunity abuser, and I'm an equal opportunity supporter. I represent the party of the hunter, angler, public access, and the wildlife that we need. And if you're a Republican or a Democrat and you're in support of that, guess what? You're going to get accolades from me. If you're a Republican or a Democrat and you're doing things detrimental to that, guess what? You're going to be in my crosshairs. I have no use for political parties and hunting did not get to where it is. Conservation did not get to where it is in America today by being a democratic or Republican issue. And every time I see hunters go down that path on one side or the other, taking a spoon feeding from the political wonks, from the talking heads, I just want to pull my hair out. I'm like, you know what? We as hunters have always, stood head and shoulders above the rest because we sorted through the morass. We said, what's best for the wildlife, what's best for the landscape. And we didn't care who was on our side. We just kept our eye on the goal, eye on the ball of we are in this for the wildlife, the landscape, and the next generation comes after us. And if you make it that way, it's a pretty easy, politics is a pretty easy place to play because everyone else is thinking you should be one of these party players. And when you engage yourself and you reject the whole notion of being one party or the other, they almost don't even know how to handle you. They're like, "Hmm, what do we do with this guy? What do we do do with this group of guys? Well, that's exactly where I want them. (laughs) I don't want them to be able to pigeonhole me. And I don't want them to be able to pigeonhole hunters and, and our message of conservation and, and access in the future of money. So it, it, you're right. It's it's a very dangerous path to say, oh, I'm going to just side with the Democrats or I'm just going to side with the Republicans. It's, that's a path where at least half the time your enemy's going to be in power. Right. Maybe more than half the time. So do you really want to go that way? No. And these, these aren't political issues. These are common sense issues that Pretty much all of America at the core supports conservation, supports wildlife, supports clean water, clean air, public land, public access. So you don't have to make yourself a a political partisan to be engaged in it.
1: Yeah. I got to say, Randy, this is this is very therapeutic for me because I'm getting to vent and then having someone respond positively right back to me. (laughs) So thank you for that.
4: Uh, Well, if my wife, if my wife was listening in on this podcast, she'd probably be saying, don't listen to this guy. You should see him (laughs) when he comes home after dealing with these people in D.C. or dealing with these people at state legislatures. It's a path to
1: insanity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I could see that being potentially a problem too. But uh, man, I might be calling you more often just to just to scratch this itch. But um, but Dan, what are you thinking over there? Because I know a lot of these things fire you up too. Where where do you want to go next
2: with this? Well, so from a political standpoint, you know, vote n- the number of votes is important, right? So. And, and from a hunting standpoint, me and Mark have talked about this a while. You know, we want to have, what's the term, Mark, uh, getting more hunters? Hunter recruitment. Hunter recruitment. So the more hunters that we bring to the table, let's say over the next 10 years, we doubled the amount of hunters in the United States. We, there there's a huge push and we got 11 million more hunters in the United States. How would, would that positively or negatively have an effect on conservation efforts i would hope it would have a positive conservation
4: impact and and the reason i say that is we'd have double the license sales hopefully we'd have double the membership in our conservation groups of elk foundation wild turkeys pheasants forever ducks unlimited um Hopefully we'd have double the number of people volunteering their time towards conservation projects, volunteering or donating their money towards conservation projects. Um, I I think that would be a bright outcome. And I know some people say, well, yeah, but that's twice as many people in my favorite spot or twice as many people competing for permission in the place I hunt. Well, maybe, maybe not, Um I'm one of those, uh, they say you're either an abundance thinker or a scarcity thinker. I'm an abundance thinker. I think the more of us who hunt, the more abundant hunting opportunity and, and uh, conservation and habitat will be. We'll, we'll fund more, we'll produce more, we'll have more opportunity. So, I I don't know, maybe I'm naive in that, uh, but I I'm all about whatever it can do whatever we can do collectively to get more people connected back to the landscapes, but hunting is a way to connect to those landscapes by acquiring food. And if so, I think we'll be just fine. If anything, we'll probably see some of our best days ahead if we can stick to that message.
1: So, Dan, I know that you, at times, we've, like you mentioned, we've debated about this back and forth, and at times you have, you know, talked about the concerns of more people out there, and you know, lots of people can compellingly speak to the risks of there being, you know, more hunters, and, you know, is there too many hunters for the amount of land and things like that? Have your views changed at all, you know, over the last year and a half as we've been discussing this? I think you've shared some things, but I'm curious to hear where your head's at on this now.
2: Well, it's, I understand, I, I guess I should put it this way. I understand that the more hunters, the better. I just feel, and I've mentioned this before, that there needs to be more of a united effort between the hunters that we already have before we go out and say, come on, America, come on and hunt with us. You know, hunting is awesome. You know, you can get your food from it. It's a rush. And, and then name all the benefits, you know, through conservation efforts. than saying, you know, and... I'll be completely honest. I'm a, I'm a little bit selfish. Uh, you know, I have, and Mark, you know, I have a great farm. I have a great age class, uh, age class worth of deer. If you added the same amount of hunters and added that same amount of hunters that are currently on my farm, that age class goes down, potentially the number of deer goes down, potentially and although there are a whole bunch of benefits of, you know, from the monetary and the state and the government, it's, I don't know. I just, I just feel that there's some kind, and of course there would have to be some kind of research done to find the, the perfect plateau, because if you add a whole bunch of hunters to our hunting, not everybody's going to be able to go hunting. I, what I imagine is, places like iowa or idaho that is or you know for me iowa is i can hunt every year but i'm going to idaho and idaho has uh you know over-the-counter elk and mule deer hunt i see i see more hunters coming in than those start to turn into draw systems and and then hunters aren't able to hunt if that makes sense and, that, and that's a little bit of a narrow-minded approach to it.
1: I understand what you're saying. There are those risks, and I guess to Randy's point is, you know, hopefully there would be counteracting benefits from the influx influx of new hunters and the the, the political clout where we would be able to produce more hunting access and we would be able to set aside additional landscapes and, and continue to see those types of benefits. But, I mean, you know, there's definitely some give and take there. It'll be... be interesting i i I personally hope it's a problem we'll we'll see and and fix or or we'll see the solution to but i don't know if we will um but it's an interesting conundrum to debate that's for sure
4: and then for from my perspective i and i i used the you know double the number and i don't know if that's one it's probably not even reasonable and two it was just pulled out of thin air but i think if nothing else, or, or the the end goal is probably, even if everybody doesn't hunt there, we don't have twice as many people hunting. If we have twice as many people who understand hunting and understand how it fits, what history it has of how it gave America the whole notion of conservation. There was no ethic of conservationism in, in America until hunting that we do all this other stuff, that we are valuable. Um, if the number of hunters stayed the same, fine with me. Uh, I just want to make sure that our relevance is well understood to a greater segment in a larger number of our society every year.
2: Right. So what what needs to be done for the current hunters and in, in that future generation of, and when I say future generation, I mean my son and my daughter are more than likely going to be hunters when they grow up, basically replenishing the old guard, so to speak. What, what can we do to, to unite? you get
4: asked that one a lot also. And, and I have a tendency to probably offer too simple of answers, but I'll tell you what my answer was. And my son is now 25 and we grew up in Montana where you would think, gee, everyone in Montana a hunter or an angler and that's not the case uh, we do have high participation thanks but for me it was about just getting my son and his friends out camping uh, you go out camping you find frogs and toads and snakes and birds and you get wet and uh, I mean we'd go and fish crappies at this lake because I knew we could catch lots of them and they get to stay in tents and build fires and all of a sudden, these kids became very interested in just the natural world, and they, to me, that's one of those first steps of getting them towards being someone who understands the hunting and fishing lifestyle. Uh, I, I think at times we as hunters think you should take a youngster or a new person, maybe they're an adult who's just wanting to get into the you know hunting or fishing. And we throw them right into the mix and it's either a really terrible experience that didn't work out or it's a really great experience, but they really didn't understand what went into making that such a great experience. And if they haven't followed the path, the steps to get there, do you think they're going to become hunters in the long term or become fishermen in the long term? I don't know. I, I think it's going to take all of us investing time in that next generation, whether it's our kids, whether it's their scouts, 4-H, whether it's our neighbor, our niece, our nephew, or whatever. Uh, you, you just That's something that you can just send. The more money you send, the more people you're going to get involved in hunting. It is, it's an investment in time. Is really what it is.
1: It's one of the great challenges, I think, of you know, our generation, especially when it comes to you know getting younger people into it, is the fact that there are so many distractions and so many alternatives, and the world in many in many places is so far apart and so separated now from the natural world um, that getting our our young people and our children and grandchildren involved and exposed to these types of things is is more of a challenge and more important than ever, as far as I'm concerned. I, I would agree.
4: But, um... The disconnect to the natural world is a big part of what is probably at the root of many challenges. Hunting faces is the the notion of society that they have of oh well, I can fill up the gas tank in my car, and that just comes from a, a hole in the ground right here at the gas station. No, that has an. Collectively, we have a big impact on the landscape. Or Gee, I can go to the supermarket and I can buy this and I can buy that, and it comes from the back room of the supermarket. Well, they are no longer connected to a rural lifestyle or to the land, and so that becomes the, the about as far as they think of it. They don't think of what's on their plate as, gee, that was an animal that died, or that was a chicken that is in a coop laying eggs for me, or you know whatever it is, or that okay, I'm a vegan, and how many millions of hundreds of millions of acres of, of wild habitat gets converted to agriculture so they can have their soy or their rice or whatever. Uh, so I, I think your point of America becoming less connected to the landscape is probably at the core of the challenge hunting going to face in the future.
1: Yeah. Now, Now, speaking of landscapes, and being connected to landscapes. So I want to kind of circle back to where we began. Yep. We talked about the notion that hunting is conservation. And yep. lots of times when we as hunters talk about that, the first thing that people mention is something that you brought up, which is, is very, very true, which is the fact that just by default, as hunters buying licenses and buying ammunition and buying gear, we are providing the funds to you know fund conservation efforts. So by default, we as hunters are conservationists but one concern that i've always had is that i think sometimes maybe some of us even myself lean on that too much and that yeah hunting's conservation i'm doing this i'm being a good conservationist because i bought my license i bought some new bullets and i'm giving money back you know to the cause my thought has always been that that's not enough and i haven't i, I you know admittedly i'm not always i realize i'm not doing enough too but my thought has always been that that's a a danger if we start thinking that just by default we're conservationists and that's all we need to do do you think that there is additional responsibility for us as hunters to the conservation of our wild places and, and wild animals and how does that take form what should we be doing in addition to just buying a license
4: i i agree completely with that worry mark it's uh you know we're in a time of of our country and our society where we like to be able to buy our advocacy. And if there's one thing that's distinguished hunters from the rest of society, is we've not only put our money where our mouth is, we put our time where our mouth is. And the days of just saying, oh, I bought my license, that's good enough, that's unfortunately not good enough anymore. Because we're a smaller percentage of society trying to keep landscapes intact against the pressures of a much larger population in our society. So for me, uh, <laughs> I've been volunteering all my life for, for these causes. So it's, I don't expect people to to go to the crazy levels that I do where me and my wife and my son, we would run a duck unlimited committee or we volunteer for this project and that project. Um, you know, some people that might just be, hey, I can go and help at their shooting range one one Saturday a year. You know, it, it it's it's, it's going to be different for every person. We all have a different amount of time, money, or talent that we can can contribute to the cause. But back to who we are as hunters, we as hunters have got here to this point. We have built this conservation, if you want to call it miracle of the past 120 years, not by just buying licenses. Yeah, that's a huge help. We've done all that through the fact that we have huge volunteer ranks among our conservation groups. We have hunters teaching hunter ed. We have hunters at the NRA sh- and teaching shooting courses. We have hunters that are in 4-H and scouts and, and all these other places where we are making a difference with our time as much as our money. And if, if hunting adopts the idea that we're just going to be able to fund this with what we pay for our licenses and our excise taxes, uh, it's, it's not going to be a very bright future because you, you know, just use some numbers and I don't know what the numbers are for turkeys or pheasants or mule deer, but I, I earlier said ducks unlimited. has conserved 12 million acres of wetlands. That's the size of Vermont and New Hampshire combined, I believe the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has conserved 7 million acres of habitat. Those are big numbers. And that happens because volunteers are out working on those projects. Volunteers are holding fundraisers. Volunteers are donating to the cause over and above their license bills. And that's what always made hunters different than the rest of society. Uh, I'll just use the example. In the year 2000, there was a bill in Congress called the Conservation and Reinvestment Act, TARA. And that would have imposed a very small excise tax on things like pants and binoculars and backpacks, similar to the excise taxes we pay at eleven percent on guns and ammo under Pittman Robertson and what we pay for fishing items under Dingle Johnson. And when that came up The screaming and yelling by the quote-unquote non-consumptive groups, as they call themselves, was unbelievable. They had their chance to fund that, to help contribute to this conservation story. And they rejected it, and they got that legislation killed. My point being, we as hunters have kept our eye on the horizon. Going forward, we put our shoulder to the wheel. We're donating our money. We're donating our time. And that's what's made the huge difference, and that's it's going to be even more important going forward. And I'll get off my soapbox
1: now. No, I uh, I thoroughly enjoyed your soapbox moments there, and I think that is uh, I think that's the perfect place to close things out because that is I think we've talked about all the different potential risks out there and there's things that we as hunters need to be concerned about and that we need to be thinking about and that we need to be talking about. But in the end, the absolute most important thing I think that I'm taking from this is that that's not enough. We need to take action. We need to put our time into it. We need to continue this conservation legacy that hunters have driven for, like you said, the last century. Um, And that's our responsibility and that's our mission moving forward. And I'm glad that there are people like you, Randy, who are spreading that message. So, um, so effectively. So, so thank you, Randy, for joining us here. Um, I've enjoyed this. Uh, I'm, I'm sure our listeners have too if our listeners want to learn more about what you're doing, if they want to listen to your podcast, watch your TV show, uh, participate in your forum, where can they go online to do that?
4: If you go to randynewberg.com, N E W B E R G, um, we have links to all of our platforms out there. Or if you want to go directly to our forum, which is a large web forum about self guided and public land hunting in the West, you go to Hunt Talk, Hunt Talk dot com. And you'll find probably more of Randy Newberg than you ever wanted. <laughs> it's, it's it's pretty easy to find us. And for Fresh Tracks TV or TV show, you can go to the Sportsman channel. They, they keep a lot of information out there for us. And uh, I just appreciate you guys having me on. I I love hunting tails. I love your part of the world. Uh, and I got seven, six or seven non-resident iowa deer points so when we get off the oh. phone here feel feel free to email me where i need to spend those uh, deer points for next year <laughs> i think I, we're I, breaking I, I, up I, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, I promise if it's too good of a spot i might not even bring my camera to it <laughs> but, but i don't want i don't want all the secrets to get out there but... <laughs> He he uh, won't even let me yeah. hunt there, Randy. <laughs> oh really? Oh, all right. Uh, well, I better just throw throw a dart at a map, I guess. <laughs>
1: there, I uh, I'll let you come with me next time, Randy. I'm 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 more of a door pounder in Iowa, just trying to find somewhere, and it's worked out. So okay. Well, uh, well,
4: guys, thanks for thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I I appreciate what you guys do and the message you're getting out there. And uh, keep
1: at it. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Randy. We will have links on the blog back to everything you mentioned so that everyone listening, you guys can check out what Randy's doing. It's great stuff. As you've heard here today, he's a, he's a great spokesman for what we're doing here. So so thank you, Randy, and good luck hunting this season. Thank you, guys. Take care. All right, you too. Well, how about that one? I think, uh, without a doubt, that was one of my favorite episodes we've put together so far. I just love Randy's perspective on these topics. And, you know, as I've said over and over and over again, I just believe that that these things are so important. This responsibility we have as conservationists, the responsibility we have to communicate effectively about hunting, the responsibility to carry ourselves appropriately as hunters, um, and the, the importance of thinking through the ethics of what we do and how we do it, how we talk about it. it it's just all so important, and lots of times these things get swept under the rug, and uh not talked about while instead all we do is is rave about big antlers or or whatever the latest crazy new thing is um i think we've all been guilty of it at times and i'm just glad that we can have a conversation like this today where we bring to the top of mind one of these topics that that really is at the core of what we do and why we're able to do it so i hope you guys enjoyed it as much as i did um i appreciate Randy joining us and i appreciate all of you joining us so going to wrap things up here we of course, first need to thank our partners who help make this podcast possible. So big thank you to Sika Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Please help this podcast by supporting those companies that are supporting us. So thanks in advance for doing that. And with that all said, hopefully uh, in the next week or two we'll have some exciting elk stories to share with you as me and Dan. Uh, hopefully return safely from this trip that we're currently on. Uh, But until next time, good luck out there if you're prepping for hunting season or if you are actually hunting. And thank you all so much for joining us. Until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor Adventure won't wait for engine problems.